Brunch with me, Anya Adams. Sister Brunch is a podcast about Black women and non-binary folks striving and thriving in media, entertainment, and the arts. And we can't wait to share more stories with you over the next few weeks. My co-host, Fanchon Cox, is out today. We will miss her, but she will be back. Don't worry. Today's guest is production manager and producer Heidi McGowan. Heidi has worked as a production manager and unit production manager on shows like Insecure, Blackish, Silicon Valley, and Body of Proof, where we work together. On Insecure and Blackish, she also worked as a producer. She's also worked as an assistant director on feature films like Black Dog, Big Mama's House, Signals, and on the TV side for shows like Girlfriends, Way Back in the Day, and Ugly Betty. Heidi has earned membership to the Directors Guild of America and is a 20-year film and television veteran. In 2021, she was nominated for a Primetime Emmy for her work on Blackish. So excited to have you here, Heidi. Thank you, Anya. And thank you for having me. I know we've been trying to do this for a while. <laughs> we have, we have, but you've been so busy, you know, working yeah. on Blackish. You just finished the final season. What was that like? Did. It was bittersweet. Like, yeah. you know, the hardest part was like looking at the kids and seeing how big they've gotten and how they've all grown. And they're, you know, like, I want to say teenagers, but they're not even like teenagers, like grown up people. And so true. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, the relationships, but at the same time, excited about moving on to a new chapter. So, yeah. Um, how many years was that? Eight years? Eight seasons. And I did the pilot also. Um, okay. So yeah, eight seasons of Blackish. But I will also add, um, I did Girlfriends back in the day, so that was that was eight seasons, but I only did seven of them. So <laughs> fifteen years of Tracy and I being together, folks. That's impressive. That never happens. That never happens. Those are two incredibly, you know, paradigm shifting shows about black people in general. So it's really cool that you were a part of that and got to creatively, you know, set some incredible standards in the industry and and for uh, the culture. I mean, I, I'm very proud of both of those shows in that I was a part of them and that they are shows that are at least Girlfriends is very fondly remembered. And yeah. I mean, Blackish seems like it's heading down that same path as being yeah. fondly remembered. But you know, it's yeah, those were those are huge. Those are huge, huge in my career and set me up for other stuff. Yeah. We kind of jumped into Blackish and normally what we do, Heidi, I'm so sorry. Uh-huh. We do <laughs> talk about like how did you get Heidi. from little Heidi McGowan to <laughs> super producer Heidi McGowan? Can you can you talk to us a little bit about like yeah. your journey? Like How'd you get here? I had been talking to a friend today about how I never intended to be in this business and that my really, like my job goals were to be a insurance investigator and that I wanted to be a part of that. And then like, maybe if things worked out in the insurance adjusting world (laughs) and investigating that I would possibly work for the government and the NTSB and do investigations into accidents and things like that. Oh my God. I know it's very strange, but what happened was that I had applied to all these internships when, you know, when I was a junior in college, everybody was applying for their internships to, you know, go do whatever. And there were like three paid internships 
And I applied to all of those and I did not get accepted into any of those programs. And I was so upset, but I had to figure out because I was like, I got to do some kind of internship. And I got accepted into CNN's internship program and it was, it was unpaid. So I was like, seriously. So (laughs) I ended up going to Atlanta and spending three months there. And I was an intern at CNN and I had to have a side job because I was like, you know, how broke can you possibly be? And I ended up working at an ice cream shop where some nice little man took mercy on me and gave me a job for literally, I would work two hours a day setting up like the ice cream shop. So like cutting the cakes, making sure all the things were in place. And then I would leave. So like it was two hours a day that I guess he didn't want to do because you have like the ice cream shop opened up at like eight and they would do coffee or whatever. And I would, I got there at like five and set everything up and then he would come in and then I would leave and take the train down to the Omni and go to CNN and work the rest of my day there. What were you doing as an intern? Gosh, you know what's funny is like what I remember about being an intern was like going to a bunch of meetings and not understanding anything that was going on, not (laughs) understanding like what people were talking about because, you know, it was an ongoing thing. So they had projects and stuff going on that I didn't know what they were talking about. But like they would do their best to try to clue me in as to what they were talking about. But when I didn't have to be in my office or going to those meetings, I was running all over the place. So I would go in when they would be doing the news. And one of like the anchors was super nice. And she would just like tell me, come on. Let's just, you know, and just let me watch. I would like all the uh, different things were included in that like one office building. So I would go up to the other floors and just walk around and see what was going on on the other floors. I ran into Jacques Cousteau in the um, elevator one time and his son. It was like on the 25th floor. So I just rode with them all the way. So that's like live television and news. And like oh my God. you just yeah. finished up. Was, so what happened? It was incredible. And like, it was a great experience. And at the end of the internship, they take you up for like a lunch and then they, Ooh. you know, send, I know, and send you on your way and like give you a little gift or whatever. When I graduated from college, the guy that I worked in, you know, that department and the guy who I worked for, So Ted Turner owned, you know, a million companies. And so he created this other company and my boss was going to run that company. So he hired me and I was his first, he, I was his first employee and I had just gotten out of college and it was a, it's so funny now because I think about like, we were kind of foreshadowing the future. It was a cable distribution company that sold programming to people who owned satellite dishes. So if you owned a satellite dish out in like Arkansas, we sold you like HBO a la carte and Showtime and all this stuff, which is kind of like how you get all the streaming services now. And I just remember when it was happening, thinking like, why don't they bundle these things? And then they could, (laughs) and then they bundled it up and, you know, they sent, you know, stuff out. 
But I think the only reason I got that job is because before I finished my internship, I had written a proposal about how CNN should be at the airport. And that, I know it's kind of crazy because I wrote this like whole proposal on why it should be at the airport and that they should have it at every gate and all this other stuff. And only for them to be like, that's great, but we've already started that process. We're already doing that. But it, what that experience showed me, because at first I was like, no, no, they're stealing my idea. And then I was like, <laughs> yeah, like I can't be the only person who thought of this. But, but what it showed to them was that like, oh, she's thinking on the yeah. right track. And so that's why I think Marty ended up hiring me. And so I worked at that company for one year. And then the company got bought by like a big cable company and then they fired all of us and, you know, they gave us our little, you know, parting, whatever. Yeah. Our severance and all that. And I like cried for like three days because I was like, I don't have a job and I live in Atlanta and, you know, and my rent was $400. (laughs) Like I was like, I was distraught. And then I was like, I I need to get a job. So I was like distraught on Friday. And then Monday I was job hunting. It was to me an opportunity to just like think of anything you want to do and like just write a letter and see if these people will see you. And so I wrote to every TV station in Atlanta and I got called by one station in for an interview and I came in and they hired me. And I was the assistant in the sales department, but because I was there, I got a chance to do all sorts of stuff. So I ended up working on a lot of their long form productions. I worked on their game show, their local game show. Oh my God, fun. Which was great because we got free (laughs) Chick-fil-A every Thursday, which is why... I can't eat Chick-fil-A now because I <laughs> ate it every Thursday for like three years. Um, and then like they had like Weather Watch and you could volunteer to work on Weather Watch. So I would work on that. And, oh, you know, the voting stuff, I would volunteer to work on that. And so it was like I, I had a great experience there, too. And I also they had a, a radio station. So I used to do voiceover work for them, which was hilarious. Oh, <laughs> So it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, those early experiences. This is Sister Brunch with me, Anya Adams. Fanchin is away today. Stay tuned for more of our conversation with our amazing guest, producer and production manager, Heidi McGowan. Check out more of our conversation with Heidi McGowan. This is all live stuff. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you like jumped from live to series to drama. So what happened was I, I lived literally a mile and a half from my job with my okay. $400 rent. I was driving to work one day and I got stopped and I got stopped by like some kid with a radio. And I was like, what are you doing? I got to go to work. And he was like, we're just going to finish this scene. Oh. And then, 
like and a walkie-talkie. Was, yeah. And <laughs> I I was like, what? And that's how I figured out. I mean, this is a long time ago. And I, I was like, oh, my God, they shoot movies in Atlanta. Yeah. So yeah. I started talking to that kid. And I started asking him a bunch of questions. His name was Jonathan Watson. And he is now a director. Oh, <laughs> so amazing. So crazy. I know. It's crazy. And I started asking him a bunch of questions. And he kind of gave me an overview of how, like, PAs, what PAs do and all that kind of stuff. So then I signed up for these classes that they had in Atlanta mm-hmm. that were, like, for cable TV. Because, you know, cable TV, they if you have a cable station, you are required to offer these community service classes, whatever. So I yeah. did those classes and I found out there was some kind of TV movie shooting in town. And this black woman who was a UPM and producer named Grace Blake out of New York, someone told me that she was around or whatever. And having been working at the TV station, I noticed that everybody sent gift baskets for things. <laughs> So I I sent Grace Blake a gift basket and asked her if I could come in and talk to her. And I did. And we had a really nice conversation. I probably talked to her for like 40 minutes. And then she recommended me to uh, a production coordinator and to hire me as a office PA. Oh, and I, I forgot to add the other important part of that story is So when I was working at the TV station, there was a movie that was coming in town that was going to shoot, like they were going to have a local TV station. So they needed a tour. And the news director told them, like, I would give them the tour. That director who I gave the tour to was Michael Schultz. Oh, if you guys don't know who Michael Schultz is, this guy is like an institution. He directed Car Wash. Yeah, he's like been around, like he can tell you stories about... Eddie Murphy, he's like this amazing, amazing director. That's so cool. And at the very end of giving him the tour of the station, I don't know what came over me. And also, (laughs) I might add, Michael Schultz, who, you know, is also drop-dead gorgeous. And I think he's, what, in his 80s now, and he's still (laughs) drop-dead gorgeous. Yeah, But, you know, back then, I was just, like, flustered. And at the very end, I just said to him, I'm going to work for you one day. I'm going to work for you one day. And he was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you, little crazy girl. And so, you know, cut to, I don't know, six weeks or maybe, maybe three months later. And when he arrived to Atlanta in the offices and came to the production office, there I was. Oh, that's amazing. I was like borderline stalker. Um, (laughs) And he was so like, just fantastic. Um, And so that was the first movie I ended up working on was with Michael Schultz and it was called Living Large. I quit, you know, I quit the TV station. It was funny because I called my parents and, you know, so I had been working at this ABC affiliate and I had benefits and all this other stuff. And I was like, I quit my job. And they were like, uh huh. And I was like, <laughs> for a movie, and I have no, like, no benefits and no da da da. And, all this, and they were like, okay, okay, all right, well, good luck with that. And, you know, I will say I was somewhat clueless as to how the whole freelance world worked 
because for the next three years, I worked nonstop and I was never without a job. I mean, I was without benefits. I was without all sorts of stuff, but I was never without a job. And then when I finally didn't have a job and things had slowed down in Atlanta, I had at least saved some money. So I was doing okay. Um, But it was, yeah, it was an interesting process. And Atlanta was a great place for me to start because the cost of living was low. Yeah. I think that's really a good thing to let young people know too. It's like, you don't have to start your career in New York or LA or now even Atlanta or Vancouver. It can be in your hometown. You can get some really good experience so that when you head into like the mountain, you have a little something, a little wind at your sails. So then cut to, you know, four years later or whatever, and I decided to move to LA, I was already in the Director's Guild, so I wasn't yeah. fighting that battle. I was fighting the battle of getting on the qualifications list, but right. I at least was in the DGA. I mean, there was things that helped and were to my benefit. I mean, you moved through PA, you were office PA, and then you were on set, and you were an assistant director, and then mm-hmm. you spent a good amount of time as a production manager, and I think like you're one of two black women I know that are production managers and like that's such a unique and specific position. Can you talk a little bit about like that job and you know what it entails? It's an interesting job because I I personally think it's a lot more interesting than it ever gets credit for. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, I think yeah, yeah. people think that all I do is count, you know, like you're just like a bean counter and an extension of accounting. And it's like, no, it's not that at all. I got my first opportunity to work as a production manager on Body of Proof. And Jim Cleaver Weiss had, what had happened in that situation was I had said to him, because we had worked together on Aaron's spelling show called Savannah um, (laughs) in Atlanta. There was this black woman who was an assistant UPM and her, Um, Her name was Pam, though I don't remember her last name, but she was lovely. I would watch Pam and I was like, that looks like a cool job because Pam would, you know, we had actors who were traveling in and out and all this other stuff. And she would like kind of help coordinate that and make sure they got settled. And they would, you know, because they were coming into Atlanta to shoot. And she just did all this, like, what it looked like to me was like all this kind of personal attention coordinating kind of thing and she would come on to set and she would you know check with all the departments and make sure everything was running okay and all this stuff and I was like if there's an ever a chance to do that job that's what I want to do is what Pam's doing and she was also included in like you know how it is on set it's like there is a hierarchy and yeah. the the creative decisions, often the logistical decisions, are all made by a small group of people. And yeah. Pam was included in that group of people. And I was like, and I want to be included in that because <laughs> yeah. I've got some opinions, right? I got, yeah. I got something to say about why are we doing this. <laughs> and so I had mentioned that to Jim. And Jim was like, and you know, and you know, Jim and Jim has a memory like an elephant and he can remember all sorts of crazy stuff that nobody else remembers. Um, And he, so, you know, this is now cut to like 10 years later and Jim calls me up and is like, Hey, I'm working on this show. 
I'm going to be the UPM and line producer, but I will need an assistant UPM and this will be a good opportunity for you to learn the job. So I was like, okay, I'd be interested in that. And at that point, I hadn't worked in a significant amount of time because I had decided I was frustrated after, you know, being a second for so long. And I decided I was going to work in independent films as an independent film producer, not knowing that, you know, you have to be a rich heiress to actually do that job (laughs) and have no experience. I did not know that. (laughs) So I was slowly going broke while working in as a independent film consultant. Um, So anyway, I had gone on a couple of job interviews and they were all for AD work. And then he was like, you know, this assistant UPM thing. So I was like, okay. And I went in and I met with a couple executives at ABC who were all really nice and all of that. But I did not, what I didn't understand is that they had their own agenda Mm. because they were really aware of the fact that we don't have any black people. Yeah, who are in the ranks who we need. So, you know, I went, like I said, through the interview process all the way up to the vice president of production. And so what they had decided without my me being part of the conversation is they were like, well, let's just hire her as the UPM. Oh, wow. And we will do whatever we can to support her in that because we need to have our own people and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so that's what happened. And Jim and I had a conversation about it. And he was like, look, you already know how like the set works and you know how scheduling works and you know what the office stuff is. He goes, the hardest part of this is going to be learning about how accounting works. And he was right. And Jim is a task master. And I learned about budgeting. And, you know, if I didn't understand something, he would send me back to the lead accountant who would then, who had the patience of I don't know what, because um, she like should be sainted, um, Janet Latham, um, because she would walk me through the budget line by line. And, you know, those budgets are like 70 pages. <laughs> and, Like, yeah, we would go through it and she would explain to me why this part is this. And if I wasn't going to use this money, then where was I going to use it somewhere else? If I wanted to say yes to somebody about something and all of that. And it was the hardest part. And for the first season that I worked on that show, it was really, 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 really difficult for me. And I thought all the time I was going to get fired. Yeah. (laughs) But it sounds like you had a lot of support. I did have a lot of support. Yeah. And they and the big thing that I always tell people is they wanted me to succeed. Right. So they helped me. And that's not usually the case with people when they come in for when you're being hired on a job, you're just supposed to succeed. Period. Right. The end, right. But when you are learning a new position, you have to have people who are in your corner who are like, they want you to be successful because you're going to make mistakes. And I made tons of mistakes. And I, I remember like they, you know, one of the things I have to do is sign checks. And one time I had to sign a payroll check and it was over a million dollars and I wouldn't sign it. 
And Jim was like, why aren't you going to sign it? And he was like, why won't you sign this? And I was like, because if I'm wrong, (laughs) are they going to come to me and get the money? I was terrified, right? Hi, it's Anya, and you're listening to Sister Brunch. We'll be right back. And if you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at Sister Brunch, Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast, and Facebook at facebook.com backslash Sister Brunch Podcast. Leave us a comment, slide into our DMs, and share your news with us. We want to celebrate your hard work with you. You're, what you're saying is, is clarifying for me why a lot of accountants move into that position, because it is such a like very complex kind of accounting side that you need to understand. It's actually not that complex. It but isn't? We make okay. it that complex. Oh, it's not, interesting. No matter what industry you work in, every industry has its own language, right? Yeah. Every, and like, my sister is an engineer, and, like, I literally have gone to work with her, and people are speaking English, and I have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> like, no clue. Like, there's words I've right. never heard of. They say <laughs> stuff. I'm like, I don't know what they're talking about. Um, and... It's the same kind of thing. It's like I had to learn the language of what happens in accounting. I did not know the language. And it's just like because a lot of people from accounting move into it, but then they have the problem of they don't know the set. They got to learn everything else. Right. Right. You know, so there's always somewhere if it's a triangle or a pie that makes, you know, is made of three pieces, you probably have two of the pieces. You don't have the third. So whatever that is, you have to learn what that is. And that's the hard, that was the hardest part. I mean, I Do cannot you tell you we, how many times I cried a I, lot no, I, at work. I think we all do too, because we want to succeed. I mean, I think that's also like the plight of the black woman who's like, we, I can't come in here and fail. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Like being a black woman in this industry, especially in a position where you are usually the only one. Do you have any kind of words of wisdom for the young folk coming up (laughs) who are going to be wading through that in in some form or another in in Hollywood? Because it is still fairly homogeneous, although we're we're, we're trying to diversify, you know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on that because you have to kind of read the room and see what show you're on. So on some shows, it's been beneficial to keep a low profile, put my head down and just do the work. On other shows, like I will never forget when I was on Girlfriends, Mara used to drive in. I don't know if you know Mara Brock-Akiel, who is the creator of Girlfriends, is this gorgeous, you know, woman who was like 22 when she created Girlfriends. Amazing. And she would come in and she had her little, you know, her Range Rover or whatever, (laughs) and she would be blasting her music and you know like ludicrous or whatever right and I just remember asking her or saying to her one day like oh I heard you coming she goes you know you need to let them know we're here (laughs) and it made me laugh so hard but it was kind of like this thing of like why you know you don't need to not be seen you don't need to be invisible you need to be present and she was like let them know you're here and yeah. there are times when that's been, that has served me well. Like on Blackish, I was definitely in the let them know you're here camp. As long as I was on Blackish, 
you would think that like everybody on the Disney lot would know, oh, that's Heidi, blah, blah, blah. No. And I would still get questions of like, I remember we had some kind of incident where we needed to have the um, security people come. And I had requested security to come and I had requested to talk to them. And my agent happened to be visiting that day. And my agent, by the way, who is a person of color, she's just not black. Uh, the, the guy, the security guy starts talking to her. Oh my Instead goodness. of talking to me. And she was like, I don't work on this show. She's the <laughs> producer. She's on black as you need to talk to her. But it wow. so like it plays itself out in different ways. And I feel yeah. like, you know, it depends on what show you're on. Like on Silicon Valley, I, you know, I didn't need to let anybody know I was there. And I will tell you, because I was the only one there. And I was like, you know, the little raisin floating in the grits. I mean, <laughs> it's like. It was just... That's going to be the quote for this this episode. The raisin, Heidi McGowan, the raisin floating in the grits. It was oh my God. just like, oh my God. It was, I, Jim and I were sitting next to each other um, at a table read in Silicon Valley. And he turns to me and he goes, my God, you're the only person of color here. I mean, it's a room filled with like 60 people. And I was wow, like, Heidi. yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> like dude this is what it's like at times yeah yeah so when it's true yeah you're you're kind of there are times when you're surrounded by your peeps and there are times when you're not and just figuring out how to navigate those different environments and there are times when you're not and you need to let them know you're here and then there's yeah. times when you're just like trying to hang on for dear life yeah, um I yeah. would say that it it has changed over the years in the last yeah. couple of years. And I don't feel so concerned about it. And I, but yeah. I will say that that also like, as I became more confident in my job and in my own abilities, I became less concerned about what they thought. And right. I became much more like, let them know that you're here. Yeah. So yeah. I, I began to sense. appreciate what Mara had said at that young age (laughs) and in different ways. One of the things we like to talk about if you're comfortable with, and you don't have to, if you don't want to, but one of the things like we want to, we like to brass tacks on the show is talking about salary range for that type of job. So like a UPM, like there's a base rate Mm -hmm. that you're paid. Are you comfortable talking about what that is? And like, can you like every year, do you get more money? Do you have to negotiate? Is it something that stays flat? Yeah, I can talk about it. I mean, I I will say I can talk about it in vagaries only in the sense of, because it is, I mean, it's easy enough to look up. So the UPM scale rate is what, you know, you start out at and it's, only it's only like maybe I feel like it's like five or six hundred dollars more than what the first AD makes right and then there is this ridiculous expectation that you will not put in for additional days and you will not do all these things at least that's how I came up and then I ended up on other shows where they're like uh no you worked on Saturday (laughs) write that in I was like damn straight but then part of the thing that 
you know, I always tell people because uh, like on Blackish, somebody said to me, there's 17 producers on Blackish. I was like, no, there are 17 people who are being paid additional money to whatever it is that their actual job is. <laughs> right, 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 right. And the way that they can do that, the way that they can pay those writers more is by giving them a producer credit because it is not subjected to scale and all of that. It's funny because on Insecure, I got a producer credit and it was like literally a matter of a request from my agent to HBO and uh, to Jim. And it was no big deal. On Blackish, it was like a wrestling match from hell. And it was negotiations. And it was, even though I had been on the show since the pilot, it was tough. It was like a big deal. Were you trying to negotiate that producer deal to get more money, like just to kind of elevate your base rate or just to have the credit? I felt like both. I wanted the okay. credit. And yeah. especially every night shoot, every whatever, you'd look around yeah. and the only person with producing credit would be me there. Because nobody yeah. else was there. <laughs> they would all Nobody wants to They're like, oh, we're going to shoot till midnight. I got a dinner at seven and I've got to go. Yeah. So um, it was a lot of that. And I just kind of was like, this doesn't make any sense to me. This is not my first job. This is not the only UPM job I have. This is not a new credit. This is not like, what are we doing? So you all that, need to I think, figure this out. Yeah. Like you just were saying too about how, as you got more confident in your job, I feel, it sounds like you were more confident in like asking for what you're worth, which I think is something as just women, but black women in general, like it's very hard to do. Yeah, and it is something that people try to talk you out of all the time. Yeah. And try when you are talking about your own value and your own worth and what you contribute and what you bring to the table, and they will either try to diminish that. Yeah. Well, that's what's expected, and that's what you're supposed to do. No, that is not what is expected. I yeah. am above and beyond. And I'm yeah. very clear about that now, but it took a while. And there was definitely yeah. a couple of times when I was like, I'm going to get fired. <laughs> right. But, you know, and you kind of suck it up and it's like, well, but if I get fired because I'm speaking up for myself or, you know, because that's uh, then that's what I'll get fired for, yeah. you know, in defense yeah. of myself. Yes, I will get fired for that. talk to you for hours about this because you have such a wealth of knowledge. I want to, before we wrap up, just for our listeners, can they follow you on anything? Are you doing any projects that they should be looking out for? You know, let us know a little bit about Heidi McGowan. I would say that they should stay tuned. Cool. Hopefully there will be some stuff that is happening either on the big screen or the small screen, I don't know yet. I am in this transitional period, which I am enjoying tremendously. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in the meantime, they can watch uh, the last, the final season of Blackish, and then they can also watch us in reruns. And you can watch yeah. the reruns of Girlfriends, which I just started watching. I know, they're great. Well, thank you so much, Heidi, for coming on the show and just sharing your life and your My journey. My pleasure.
Thank you all so much for listening to Sister Brunch with me, Anya Adams. That was our conversation with Heidi McGowan. Visit sisterbrunch.com to find out more about her and how to support her in her upcoming projects. Remember guys, fashion will be back soon. But in the meantime, remember to follow us on Instagram at Sister Brunch Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Sister Brunch and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Sister Brunch Podcast. Got questions for our Ask Sister Brunch segment? Visit sisterbrunch.com to fill out our questions form and we might just read and answer yours on air. Also, sign up for our monthly newsletter to get job tips, viewing recommendations, and more. And hey, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes. Your support is really important. Our producer is Sonata Lee Narcisse. Our show producer is Brittany Turner. Our executive producer is Cristobal Encia Boade. We acknowledge that the land we record our podcast on is the original land of the Tongva people for those of us in Los Angeles. Thanks to you guys again for listening. Can't wait to see you next time. Take care.